This week, I'd like to welcome you back. We're continuing our series on the Gospel of Luke, which is subtitled, The Life and Teachings of Jesus, because that's what the Gospel of Luke, that's what all the Gospels are about. And last week, in chapter 6, it was very heavily weighted with the teachings of Jesus and some pretty intense teachings at that. It's Luke's counterpart to the Sermon on the Mount of Matthew, which is in chapters 5, 6, and 7 of Matthew. It has many of the same teachings and uh, parables and elements right down to the way it ends because it ends with the parable of the two foundations. Remember? The wise man who built his house upon the rock so that when the storms of life come against it, the house would not be shaken. They both end in the same way. And of course, the main point of the parable that he tells there at the end is Jesus is comparing those who act upon his words to those who do not act upon his words. He's saying if we call him Lord, we will follow his teachings. If we're Christians, it's really not optional. We're to follow his teachings. And the application that I ended up with last week was this. When we do that, when we act upon his words, okay, we are building our lives on the solid rock that is Jesus Christ so that when life goes sideways, as it sometimes does, and the floods of life burst against us, our house will not fall. Our house will stand and our faith will hold and our lives will not collapse under the strain. Why? Because we are built on the solid rock that is Jesus Christ. We're Christians. His life and his teachings. And speaking of his teachings, um, the Beatitudes and the kingdom rules that we looked at last week, I told you about how sometimes they rub people wrong. <laughs> Even people who have been longtime church folk, right? They're like, huh? Right? Because they seem so extreme, and they seem so extreme because they are so extreme. They are. They stand out as very different to the conventional ways and wisdom of the world. They don't match what most people think, right? What are some of the things? Love your enemies? Do good to those who hate you? You kidding me? Right? Bless those who curse you? Pray for those who mistreat you? I told you last week that sometimes I call them the what rules, right? What? Because when, when people read those, they're like, what's up with that? They're like, I don't know, you know, they're, even Christians, I didn't sign up for this. Who came up with this stuff anyway? Jesus, right? It was Jesus. He came up with them. And he says, if you call me Lord, you will do them. You will act upon my words, even if they're extreme. These kingdom rules are very extreme. But here's the bottom line, or shall I say the bottom rule. It's the golden rule. In 631 of Luke, Jesus says, and just as you want people to treat you, treat them in the same way. Matthew records it. It's almost identical, but it's a little bit different. I, I like the way Matthew says it here. He says, therefore, however you want people to treat you, so treat them. And then he says this, for this is the law and the prophets. John Blake translation, the golden rule, well, he's saying the golden rule is the bottom line and the summing up of all the law and the prophets. It's also the bottom line and the summing up for all of those kingdom rules that Jesus gives us in Luke and in Matthew. And these kingdom rules are not according to the reasoning of this world. Jesus' kingdom rules are not 
of this world. That's the point. They're not of this world. They're not natural rules. They're supernatural knowledge of godlike character. It's from God's perspective, not from ours. And that's why Jesus gave them to us. Luke 6, 35 and 36, Jesus said, if we keep the kingdom rules, this is what he says, we will be sons and daughters of the Most High. For he himself is kind to ungrateful and evil men. Therefore, be merciful just as your Father is merciful. These extreme kingdom rules are born out of extreme love. Love, extreme love. God's love, the love of Christ. And that love is in us. You need to know that. That love is in us because Jesus is in us. So don't think you can't do it. Because Jesus is in us, we can act upon his words. We can. We can do it. But only because he and the Holy Spirit are within us. Amen? Okay. We are his body. We are literally the physical and spiritual manifestation of the kingdom, God, kingdom of God here on earth. And that's why Jesus came. He came to fulfill the law, right? To fulfill the Old Testament, to initiate the new covenant, and to usher in the kingdom of God, which, by the way, is you, Sherry, okay? and you, Bill. It's us. We are the kingdom of God here on earth. So let me begin chapter 7 by reading verses 1 through 10. Listen as I read. When he had completed his discourse in the hearing of the people, what that means, he just went through the Beatitudes and the kingdom rules, rules for kingdom life in chapter 6. He went to Capernaum. And a centurion's slave who was highly regarded by him was sick and about to die. When he heard about Jesus, he sent some Jewish elders asking him to come and to save the life of his slave. When they came to Jesus, that is the Jewish elders, they earnestly implored him saying, He is worthy for you to grant this to him. For he, speaking of the centurion, he loves our nation and it was he who built our synagogue. And Jesus started on his way with them. In other words, he was going to go to him. And when he was not far from the house, the centurion's house, the centurion sent friends saying to him, the friends told him, Lord, do not trouble yourself further, for I am not worthy for you to come under my roof. For this reason, I did not even consider myself worthy to come to you. In other words, that's why I sent these friends. I'm unworthy. But he says, but just say the word. And my servant will be healed. For I am a man placed under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to the one, go. And he goes. And I say to the other, come. And he comes. And to my slave, do this. And he does it. Now when Jesus heard this, he marveled at him and turned and said to the crowd that was following him, I say to you, not even in Israel have I found such great faith. When those who have been sent, when those who had been sent returned to the house, they found the slave in good health. You pray with me? Heavenly Father, Lord Jesus, we thank you for your presence here. We thank you that you're here. And we lift up, as Joseph said, those who are struggling in, in difficulty and health situations right now, and Ernie and recovering from his surgery, and, and David Sr. Uh, in the ICU. 
we lift them up to you. We lift up our family that have other issues that are going on, relational issues. And God, we pray that the words of our mouths and the meditations of our hearts, the way we think about the people sitting around us and those out beyond these walls, may our thoughts be acceptable in your sight. We pray that these words of scripture that we're going to be going over today and the way they are read and the way they fall upon our ears and our inner understanding, that you would, by the power of your Holy Spirit, give us ears to hear what you're saying to us and help us to act upon your words. Help us to be your followers, for you are our Lord. We pray in your name, Jesus, and all God's people can say, So it says, when Jesus finished teaching on the rules for kingdom life, he went to Capernaum. Now, as you remember, Capernaum, who was, whose hometown was Capernaum? Oh, Peter. Peter's hometown. That's where he, they were called. And there he receives an unusual request from a very unlikely individual, a Roman centurion. This Roman centurion sends some Jewish elders to ask Jesus to save the life of one of his slaves. Now, keep this in mind because that is very important to the story, okay? The Roman centurion is a soldier of high rank. And I find three things very unusual about this story. The first one is Romans are Gentiles, right? Romans are the occupiers of Israel at this time. They are the oppressors of Israel. They are the enemies of Israel. Yet Jesus agrees to go. I think that's unusual. Just needs to be pointed out. Second thing is the Jewish elders vouch for this guy. They say he loves our nation and he helped build our synagogue. Remember I told you I've been to Capernaum and there are two ruins of, of synagogues there, one from the 4th century and one from the 1st century. Well, apparently the 1st century one was, was built by this guy. At least he helped to build it. That's interesting. The third unusual thing about this story is the Roman centurion is humble. That seems unexpected, doesn't it? I mean, he's got to be a big, bad, type A dude, right, to be who he is, Right? So he's, he's humble, he's respectful, and even reverent. He has obviously heard of Jesus and reveres him highly because he says this through his friends that he sends to him. He says, Lord, do not trouble yourself further, for I am not worthy for you to come under my roof. That's humility. That's respect. And that's unexpected, really, for me as I read the story. Then the centurion acknowledges Jesus' power and authority by using a military illustration. How many of you out there have served in the military? Raise your hand. Anybody out there? Raise your hands. Okay. This illustration, will you'll understand it. You will relate with this illustration. It's in verses um, 7, excuse me, 8, 9, and 10 of this story. I'm going to start with 7. It says, For this reason, I did not consider myself worthy to come to you, but just say the word. Just say the word and my servant will be healed. Okay? For I also am a man placed under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to this one, go, and he goes. And I say to another, come, and he comes. And I say to my slave, do this, and he does it. Now when Jesus heard this, he marveled at him. I can't imagine Jesus marveling at anybody, right? I can see marveling at Jesus. But Jesus is like, wow, that's important. 
he marveled at him and turned and said to the crowd that was following, I say to you, not even in Israel have I found such great faith. Great faith. When those who had been sent, the friends, returned to the house, they found the slave in good health. Jesus' response to this guy, this centurion, is, wow. <laughs> now that's great faith, right? John Blake translation, but that's it. That's great faith. And when the friends were sent, uh, that were sent to Jesus got back, the slave was fine. The slave was fine when they got there. This could be, Paul, this could be the first example of a remote telehealth appointment. Right? I mean, there were no, without the computers and everything, Paul does those, so that's why I said Paul. Right? So, because the guy, he doesn't even see Jesus, doesn't even meet Jesus, and, and Jesus doesn't even go to the house. He just does it from where he's at. It's like a telehealth appointment, okay? So, and I'm messing with you. But the main messages here are, number one, Jesus has power and authority, the power and authority of the Messiah, which is the power and authority of God. We learned that in the previous chapters. He does what only God does. He does the things God does, right? And then the second message is his love and care is not limited to the Jewish people. That's really important to this story. Okay, that's important, especially for the Gentile readers of Luke's gospel. Remember, Luke is written, writing specifically to the Gentiles. People like Theophilus, remember? Both that and Acts. Theophilus, Greek name. Greek and Roman Christians. And the point of this here is that Jesus didn't come, just come for Jewish people. Jesus came for all people. You remember second chapter, would the angel say, this good news shall be for all the people. For today in the city of David there has been born for you a Savior who is Christ the Lord. The next two events in chapter 7 are the raising of a dead man and the response of John the Baptist and his disciples to that event. That amazing display of miraculous power by Jesus. By recording this miracle, Luke is continuing to reveal who Jesus is to the world. And just now, he raised, he's raising the bar of who Jesus is. Jesus has power and authority even over life and death. That's the message. He brings dead people back to life. Luke wants you to know that's who Jesus is. He wants the Gentiles, the Roman Christians, that's who Jesus is. So listen for that as I read and comment on verses 11 through 16. It should be up on the screen as I read. Soon afterwards, he went to a city called Nain. Nain is just south of Nazareth, which is the hometown of Jesus. It's in the region of Galilee. It's just south of Nazareth. And his disciples were going along with him, accompanied by a large crowd. Now, as he approached the gate of the city, a dead man was being carried out. This is important. The only son of his mother. And she was a widow and a sizable crowd from the city was with her. Now, when the Lord saw her, he felt compassion. Well, that's no surprise. Jesus is our example of compassion. Luke is huge on compassion for the less fortunate and the hurting and the broken people. Talked about that last week. And Jesus is our example of how to deal with him. So we're not surprised. He felt compassion on her, but, but why? Well, because she was a widow. And she had just lost her only son. That means she's like all alone in the world. At that time, no social status. You have no son. You have no husband. And he says to her, do not weep. 
Why would he say do not weep? She's got every reason in the world to weep. Well, it's because of what he's about to do, right? It's what he's about to do. And he came up and touched the coffin. As he touched it, the bearers came to a halt. And he said, young man, who's he talking to? The dead guy. That's right. Who does that? Jesus. Okay. Young man, I say to you, arise. The dead man sat up and began to speak. And Jesus gave him back to his mother. Now, this is important. If you've ever seen on TV, as, as I have, some of the funerals that take pa- place in Palestine when people are killed there and they're carrying the coffin, did you ever notice that the, there's no lid on the coffin? Usually, there's not. And they're usually wrapped up. So that was probably done at this time. Okay? So when he spoke to him, he sat up. That's kind of crazy, right? He sat up and started speaking. That would weird you out right there. And it says, Jesus gave him back to his mother. We don't know if they set the coffin on the ground and he helped him out of the coffin and led him over to his mother or if he took him up and he carried him and gave him to his mother. We don't know. Maybe it was just that he brought him back to life and that's what it meant by giving back to him. But it says, Jesus gave him back to his mother. So that's why he says, don't weep, do not weep. Fear gripped them, I would imagine so. Fear gripped them all. And they began glorifying God, saying, a great prophet has arisen among us. Well, yeah. And God has visited his people. When Jesus was born, what did they call him? God with us. God with us. So there you have it. So Jesus has power even over life and death. Jesus can bring dead people back to life. All right? And we can see where this is going, can't we? We've read the end of the book. Where's this going? Jesus himself rises from the dead and conquers death for all of us. These are just little bits and spatterings. There's one next week, too, with Jairus. There's spatterings of Jesus bringing the dead back to life. But that's where it's going, to his own resurrection. So word of this gets back to John the Baptist, who I'm assuming is still in prison. If you remember from chapter 3, he spoke out against the wickedness of Herod. And Herod had him, what, thrown in prison. So he's in prison, probably. And it's not completely clear if John is doing this for his own self and his own confirmation or to make it completely clear to his disciples who Jesus is. Because you remember when he baptized Jesus, the voice came out of where? Heaven. This is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. So John heard that voice. But John sends two of his disciples to ask Jesus again for clarification. And this is the question they ask. Are you the expected one or do we look for someone else? It's kind of like, Are you the one, or are you the one before the one, or the one before the one before the one? No, John's the one before the one, and Jesus is the one. But Jesus doesn't give a simple answer. He doesn't say yes or no, which I would prefer, personally. But he answers with actions. He answers with obvious, powerful evidence of who he is, and that is the what? The Messiah. He's the Messiah. So listen for those things as I read verses 17 through 23. Listen for that. This report concerning him, Jesus, went out all over Judea and in all the surrounding district. The disciples of John reported to him about all these things. So they went to the prison, I guess, and told him, you're not going to believe what happened. Summoning two of his disciples, John sent them to the Lord saying, are you the expected one or do we look for someone else? When the men came to him, they said, John the Baptist has sent us to you to ask, are you the expected one? Or do we need to look for someone else? And that, at that very time. Now notice here, he doesn't answer. This is important. 
They ask him the question, but he doesn't answer the question. This is what he does. It says, at that very time, right after the question, at that very time, he cured many people of diseases and afflictions and evil spirits, and he gave sight to many who were blind. Then verse 22, and he answered and said. Then he answers them. So he doesn't at first. They're just sitting there watching him do all this, right? And then he answered and said to them, go and report to John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, the dead are raised, the poor have the gospel preached to them. Blessed is he who does not take offense at me. So basically what happens here is show and tell, right? Okay? Show and tell. Jesus is saying, what I just showed you, go in, tell John. Tell him what you have seen and heard. What I have shown you, go and tell John what you have seen and heard. And verse 23 is a roundabout way of saying a, a more simpler, yes, I'm him. Blessed is he who does not take offense at me. In other words, I am the one. You won't be disappointed. I won't let you down, right? Then the next seven verses, in the next seven verses, Jesus just launches into these praises for John the Baptist, okay? He launches into these praises. He praises John as a one-of-a-kind prophet and a man of God sent to prepare the way for the Messiah, and then Jesus makes an interesting statement. It, it, it's unusual, I think. It's very unusual. A statement where he's comparing John to you, Sue. Jesus is literally comparing John to us. You're thinking, what are you talking about? Well, listen. Verses 24 through 30. When the messengers of John had left, he began to speak to the crowds about John. And then he asks this question three times, by the way. He says, what did you go out into the wilderness to see? It's a variation, but he asks it three times. He says, what did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? Was it a nature walk or something? Right? You bird watchers, why are you going out? Why did you go out into the wilderness? He's talking about John the Baptist. But what did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Those who are splendidly clothed and live in luxury are found in palaces. And I think he's referring to the scribes and the Pharisees and the priests. But what did you go out to see? Third time, a prophet? Question mark. Yes, I say to you, and one who is more than a prophet. John's not just a prophet. He's more than a prophet. Okay, he's one of the ones before the one, right? This is the one about whom it is written. Behold, I send a messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way before you. I say to you, among those born of women, there is no one greater than John. Well, think about that. Everyone's born of women, right? Men don't have babies, right? No. So he's saying John's greater than everybody, everybody born of women. Okay? Yet, he goes, but then he says this. This is the strange part. He says, there is no one, no one greater than John of those born of women, which is everybody. He says, yet... He who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. Well, who is that? What did I just say earlier? We are the kingdom of God. Those who trust in the Messiah, those who follow Jesus, we are the kingdom of God. Jesus ushered that in. It's the new covenant. It's the new wineskins. It's the new cloth. It's us. So he's saying, you are greater than John the Baptist. Even the least of us is greater than John the Baptist because we are following the Christ. 
I don't completely understand that statement, but it's an amazing statement. He's comparing John to us and saying that we are every bit as good or better than John. Maybe he's means in God's eyes because we've been sanctified and reconciled. When all the people and the tax collectors heard this, they acknowledged God's justice having been baptized by John. So he's talking about John saying, oh yeah, John, oh yeah, got baptized by John. But then the Pharisees and the lawyers rejected that because they themselves had not been baptized by John. Yeah, they're not even going to acknowledge that John is great. Okay, So that's where that ends. Then Jesus goes on to call the people of that generation, which by the way is Jesus' generation. <laughs> he calls them out because they do not recognize the significance of the prophet John the Baptist. They also do not recognize the significance of the Messiah Jesus. They are missing it. This this generation, many of them are missing it because of their lack of spiritual understanding and their arrogance. It's very short. Listen to verses 31 through 35. To what then shall I compare the men of this generation? And what are they like? They are like children who sit in the marketplace and call to one another and say, we played the flute and you did not dance. We sang a dirge and you did not weep. For John the Baptist, Jesus is saying this to them, for John the Baptist has come eating no bread and drinking no wine, and you say he has a demon. What's up with that, right? And the Son of Man has come eating and drinking, and you say, behold, a gluttonous man and a drunkard, friend of tax collectors and sinners. Discrediting Jesus, they can't even see who he is. And then it says, yet wisdom is vindicated by her children. In other words, the people that have spiritual wisdom will recognize who John the Baptist is. And who Jesus is. So the last event in chapter 7, our chapter for today, is all about these things. It's all about forgiveness. It's all about faith. And it's all about love. This story that I'm about to talk about involves a Pharisee named Simon, Jesus, and a sinful woman. It also includes a lot of tears and a very expensive bottle of alabaster perfume. They're all part of this story. And we were in staff meeting, sitting in staff meeting um, this week on Tuesday, and I was talking about what I was going to talk about. And Allie, who is director in running our children's program, she goes, oh, Pastor John. She said, that's the story the kids are learning this week. We're going to be going over that story. I said, oh, that's awesome. And we talked about that for a little while. So I just want you to know, we have a kids' church, and they're studying the same story in there that we're going to be studying out here. So pretty cool, kind of a God thing, right? Very serendipitous. I love it when stuff like that happens. In these last 12 verses, Jesus teaches the Pharisee and us with a parable about expressing love for God and how important it is for us to express gratitude and love and praise to God. One of our responses that we should have to God's grace and forgiveness should be love, extreme love, and extreme gratitude. Would you agree? A mathematical equation would be something like this. Our sins plus God's grace and forgiveness equals love, and a lot of it. We have been forgiven much, therefore we should love much. The greater our sins, the more love we feel in response to being forgiven. So I want you to listen for that in this story. This is a very powerful story. As the kids are learning it, I want you to hear as I read. Verses 36 through 50. It takes us through the end 
of chapter 7. Now one of the Pharisees was requesting him, that is Jesus, to dine with him. And he entered the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. And there was a woman in the city who was a sinner. Now we don't know what kind of a sinner. That's all it says. We don't know if she was a thief or if she was an adulteress or if she uh, was a woman of the night. We don't know. But she was a sinner and apparently a lot, a lot of sin. And when she learned that he, Jesus, was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house, she brought an alabaster vial of perfume. Very expensive. And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and kept wiping them with her hair from her head and kissing his feet and anointing them with perfume. Now when the Pharisee when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, and obviously what he means there is he didn't say this to Jesus. He's probably just thinking it, right? He's just saying it to himself. So he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would know who and what sort of person this woman is who is touching him, that she is a sinner. So he's thinking, oh, Jesus is no prophet. If he was, he'd know, and he wouldn't be letting her touch him like that. Right? She's a sinner. She's a sinner. So that's what he's thinking in his head. But he doesn't say it to Jesus. And then verse 40, it says, and Jesus answered him. Well, he didn't say it to Jesus, but Jesus knew, right? He knew what he was thinking. So he says, Simon, that's the Pharisee's name, Simon, not Peter, Simon the Pharisee. I have something to say to you. And he replied, say it, teacher. And then he tells the parable, starting in verse 41. A moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they were unable to repay, he graciously forgave them both. And then Jesus asked, so which of them will love him more? That's what he asks of Simon. Simon answered and said, I suppose the one whom he forgave more. And he said to him, you have judged correctly. In other words, bingo. You're right, Simon. You got it. You got it. And then turning toward the woman, he, he turns toward the woman. He's talking to Simon, but he turns toward the woman. And he said, Simon, do you see this woman? And I think it's a lot deeper than do you see her physically. I think he said, do you see her heart, Simon? Do you see what she's doing? Do you see what she's feeling? Do you see her repentance? Do you see her confession? Simon, do you see this woman? And then he says to him, he says, I entered your house and you gave me no water for my feet. You see, that was a custom of the time. They still do it over there. That's what you do when you have guests come to your house at the time, especially. But she, you gave me no water, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss. That also is the way you treat your guests at the time. You give them a kiss when they come in, right? They still do that. He says, you, you gave me no kiss, but she, since the time I came in, has not ceased to kiss my feet. Feet were not very pretty things at the time, right? It was a very humble thing for her to wash his feet like Jesus when he washed the feet of the disciples, right? She's not ceased to kiss, not my head, my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, which is something you do that you honor someone when they're the guest in your house. He says, you didn't anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my, again, my feet. My feet with perfume, which is way more precious than the oil. He says, for this reason I say to you, her sins, which have been, her sins, which are many. You hear that? 
She did some stuff. We don't know what. Doesn't really matter. Her sins, which are many, have been forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. And this is where I, I realize he's talking about Simon, to Simon, right? Because Simon thinks he's a pretty righteous dude. But Simon's sins are many. He just doesn't realize it. He doesn't realize how much he has been forgiven. But she does. She sees who Jesus is. She's humbled by that. And she's forgiven it. And she has shown tremendous love. Then he said to her, your sins are forgiven. He turns to her, your sins are forgiven. Those who were reclining at the table with him began to say to themselves, who is this man who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. So first of all, to be clear, it wasn't just any faith that saved her. Okay? And it certainly wasn't her faith in herself, was it? No. It was her faith in Jesus the Christ that saved her. Just like it is our faith in Jesus the Christ that saves us. Same, same. You see, she believed that Jesus would show her mercy because she had heard about him. She had watched him. She had seen him from a distance, afraid to approach him. But realizing who he is, she comes straight on, full force. And he does. He shows her mercy. He shows her mercy. And because her sins were many, she loved much. Look at her expressions of love. Would you say that was extreme? My wife has never done that. Has yours? Or have you ever done that to anybody? Oh my gosh. Oh my gosh. Her expressions of love were extreme. Absolutely. Why? Because she had been forgiven much. And she knew it. Simon had, but he had not come to it yet. That's what I think. And so he didn't love much. So on a very personal note, I want you to know today that I have been forgiven much. John Blake. My sins, you need to know, my sins are many. I'm not going to go into detail because it's not necessary. And trust me, you don't want to know. Okay? But over the course of my life, over the course of my life, my sins have been many. And though I am completely unworthy of God's grace, you know what? I have it because he offered it and I took it. I have been forgiven much. Have you? Have you? I have. I have been forgiven much. And because of that, I am grateful from the top of my head to the bottom of my feet. My heart is full of love for God. And the kind of love I'm talking about here is not just a love you. No. This is love that is motivated by gratitude. It's the motivation of gratitude. It's love all gushed up and mixed up together. And I am grateful. My heart is full of love. Because to be honest, I deserve judgment and punishment. That's what I deserve. But God showed me grace and mercy. 
I have been forgiven much, and so have you. Sorry to point, but I think that got everybody. You back there? So have you. So we should never become prideful about our salvation. Why would we? How could we? We are saved by grace through faith. It's the mercy of God. We deserved punishment, but God shows us mercy. We deserve judgment, but God showed us grace. So Jesus reminds us to go and do the same to others. It's the kingdom rules. Pay it forward, right? Be merciful as your Father is merciful. Kingdom rule. Kingdom rule. I talked about the kids' church earlier, Allie and I in our discussion, the staff meeting. She also said, oh, Pastor John, she said they're going to be memorizing for next week, not this week, but for next week, Colossians chapter 3, verse 13. I thought, oh, it's one of my favorite verses. This is not the version that I use, the translation that I use, but this is what the kids are going to memorize, and I want you to hear it. It says, put up with one another. I like that. The word is to be forbearing of one another. Put up with one another. Forgive one another. If you are holding something against someone, forgive, just as the Lord forgave you. One of my favorite passages. Does it sound familiar? It should. I preached on it many times. One of my favorite verses, and it's so true. We forgive because we have been forgiven much. We have been forgiven much. If there is one thing that cannot be overlooked in the teachings of Jesus, if there is one thing that cannot be missed in the teachings of Jesus and in the Christian faith, it is forgiveness, right? Forgiveness that is there because of mercy and grace of God. So if we've received it, we are expected to what? Give it to others. Our sins are many. And we have been forgiven much. Hence, we are to love much. To love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. To love our neighbors as ourselves. To love each other even as Jesus loved us. Right? And to love people who don't know God yet. As the kingdom rules say, like God does. People who are ungrateful and evil people. Be merciful as your Father is merciful. Thursday morning, I got up to take my walk at dawn. Sun wasn't up yet. What I do almost every morning. Did not do it this morning. Just a little bit. But, um... On Wednesday, I had been working on my sermon, thinking about my sermon and this story. And so I'm walking along, and I said, okay, I need to pray about this. I need to, I need to acknowledge things to God. And so I started out my prayer with what Peter said after Jesus, you know, they caught all the fish. He said, Lord, I am a sinful man. That was the start. I'm not going to go through everything. But it was something like that, Lord, I'm a sinful man. My sins are many. My sins are many. I just want to thank you for loving me. Thank you for saving me. Thank you for forgiving me. Thank you for accepting me. Thank you for choosing me and even using me. I just went on and on for a quarter of a mile. It was a quarter of a mile prayer. And I'm, I start welling up in tears. It was like an exercise in acknowledging that I have been forgiven much. 
And because of that, it produced love, gratitude, loving gratitude in me. So what I want to ask you to do this week, you don't have to do it. There's not going to be a test. Okay? But I want you to do this as an exercise. Not an exercise in shame, because that's not what it's about. It's an exercise in reminding us how much God has forgiven us. Right? And I'd love for you all to do that this week sometime. Just do that as an exercise in love. We have sinned. We have been forgiven much. Therefore, we will love much. Would you pray with me? Lord God, you loved the world so much that you gave your only begotten son so that whoever believes in him would not perish. That's us. That we would not perish, but we would have everlasting life. And you, you didn't send Jesus into the world to condemn the world, but that the world might be saved. That's why he came. I thank you that you saved me. You saved us. We deserved something else, but you gave us grace. We deserved something else, but you showed us mercy. And we have been forgiven much. We love you, Lord. We love you. In your name, Jesus. And all God's people can say, amen.